Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan, privileged to be with you even if it's online and digitally right now. We're in a series that we have entitled Loyal Love, going through the story of Joseph. Today we find ourselves in Genesis 42. The theme of our sermon is gonna be transformed lives. Hopefully, whether you're a Christian or not, you're gonna lean in and ask some good questions. Could the Bible actually have something to say about transformation and change? We believe it has a lot to say about changing the human life, not manipulating it, not coercing it, but melting it into proper shape through the love of God. And so in this series, we've entitled Loyal Love today, Genesis 42. Let me read for you the first half of this chapter through verse 17. From verse 1 we read, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed, bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? he said. They said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all in custody together for three days. This is God's word for us today. Three things I'm going to take you through. Number one, the theme of change. Number two, we're going to look at the idea of where this change happens. And then thirdly, how it happens. So pretty simple. Change, where it happens, and thirdly, how it happens. So under first, the first part, under the theme of change. In Genesis chapter 42, the wisdom of God through Joseph has proven true. The dreams and all of the suspicions, all of the prophecies, all of the things that he had spoken, all of those things are actually coming true here in Genesis 42. Joseph had predicted that there would be seven years of plenty in the land and seven years of famine. And at this point in the story, the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan are both experiencing a widespread famine. No one's exempt. No one's being left out. Everybody is impacted. And as the chapter begins, our attention goes back to Jacob and his 11 sons. And as the story begins, there's all these red flags if you've been tracking from Genesis 37, where we're first introduced to Joseph and Jacob and the 11 sons. There's a lot of dysfunction early in the story. There's a lot of dysfunction here in this part of the story as well. What we notice is that these sons, there's 11 of them, 
they're still at home living with Papa Bear. He's the one who seems to be the provider. He's still the patriarch. Jacob is still in charge. It seems like they're kind of mooching on him. They, they're going into Papa's fridge. They're spending a lot more time in the basement playing video games. They're not as responsible and independent as you might expect. And so Papa Jacob, he says, fellas, have you noticed that the famine has come into our land as well? It's time to pay attention. I heard that there's grain in Egypt. Why don't you go south? Now, no doubt, it's a long journey. They probably don't want to go to Egypt, but at the same time, Egypt reminds them of their past, that they had, they had taken their youngest, younger brother, Joseph, that they had sent him into isolation, that they'd thrown him in the pit, and then they took him to Egypt. They sold him into slavery. And so when they, they are spoken, when they're told, go down to Egypt, they probably and most likely have a guilty conscience. They go, I don't know if I really want to go to Egypt. This is where we sold our brother into slavery. We're also told that Jacob chose not to send his youngest brother, Benjamin, because, quote, he feared that harm might happen to him. Twenty years prior, Jacob has sent his original favorite son, Joseph, alongside of the other brothers, and that favorite son never came home again. And so we're left wondering if Jacob has grown suspicious as to what really happened to Joseph. So the story quickly continues. The details are moving fast in the early part of the chapter. Ten of Jacob's sons, they travel down to Egypt to buy grain for their families. And verse 6 tells us that Joseph was now the governor of the land. Joseph, he was managing all foreign sales and exports, and the brothers were unable to recognize him. Because at this point in the story, he is a 37-year-old Egyptian governor. And the last time they laid eyes on Joseph, he was a 17-year-old Hebrew shepherd. See, in these 10 brothers, they bow down before the ruler of the land. They don't know it's their brother yet. They bow, they bow down before the ruler of their land. They're at his mercy. Is he going to bless them? Is he going to give to them? Is he going to sell to them? And immediately, Joseph recognized these men. And the text also tells us that he remembered his original dream. Not a lot of pomp and circumstance. You might expect a lot more detail given to it. It just simply says that Joseph remembered what God had put in his heart in Genesis 37, that at some point in his life, his brothers would bow down to him. And it takes place here in Genesis 42. His brothers are bowing down to him. But instead of immediately revealing himself, and we're going to look at that, instead of immediately revealing himself as Joseph, their long-lost brother, Joseph devises a plan to test these men. Right up front, Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies, Canaanite spies that have come to collect information about the vulnerabilities of Egypt. And of course, the brothers quickly deny it. And in verse 10, they say, No, my Lord, your, servant have, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And that phrase should pop off the page as you heard me say it, or if you've read it. We are honest men. We have never been spies. And Joseph's thinking to himself, Sure, maybe but I know who you really are. I know your past. I know your murderous intentions. I know that you were violent men, that you were hate-filled, that you hated me, that you were jealous, that you were going to murder me, that you sent me into a pit and you sold me into slavery. Sure, you might not be spies, but I know who you really are. I know your true character. I know the past. See, when they had the audacity to say, 
No, my Lord, we are honest men. At this point in the story, Joseph needs to know the truth. He needs to know who these brothers really are, what's really going on in their life. Were they just saying what anybody who's at the mercy of a superior would say? Whatever you want us to say to you, we say it to you. Just have mercy upon us. No, 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 we're honest men. Anybody's going to say that. So he needs to know what's really going on. Are they still calloused? Are they still hardened? Are they still jealous? Are they angry men? Or have they really changed? I see, revealing himself at this point in the story was not going to get the, the answers, not going to get the feedback that he wanted. And so Joseph, he took his brothers through this series of grueling, emotional, personal tests and trials. These assessments that really mirrored the, own, the journey that Joseph had been on as they had put him into slavery. See, but these tests were designed to expose the character of these hardened men. And we didn't get to read through every test, so let me just give you a brief summary and move on from this point. First, Joseph wanted to know if Benjamin was still alive. Benjamin was a brother that he shared the mother and a father. This is the sibling that he was the closest with. Now this is his father's favorite. Benjamin is Jacob's favorite. They had claimed that he was alive. And so if they could show him and give proof that Benjamin was still alive, then he might begin to see that these guys were truth tellers, that there was something behind their word. Or had these murderous men killed him too? Number two, second, who's going to volunteer to go get Benjamin? The first part of the plan was that most of the brothers were going to stay in Egypt and that he was going to send only one. So who's going to volunteer? Then he puts them in prison for a couple of days, lets them think about it. After three days in prison, he changes his plan just a little bit. Then he wonders who's going to volunteer to stay. He asks for one. Very similar to his own story. One brother who's been separated from the rest, he's been sent to Egypt, who's going to come get him? See, he's testing them. He's looking into their heart. Fourth, when Simeon is the one who is singled out, would anyone come back for their brother? Are they just kind of going to say, you know what? We lost one, we've lost another, let's move forward. He wants to know if they have different intentions. And then fifthly, when Joseph replaced some money in these men's carry-ons, what would they do with it? Were they money-hungry? Were they greedy? Or were they truly honest men? Did they have honor? See, Joseph wanted to know if their lives were still characterized by those same ingrown patterns and habits of the past. But let's personalize it for a moment. Think about your life. Do the attitudes, habits, and sins of your past continue to characterize your present? Have you learned to care about somebody other than yourself? Have you learned to love one another? How will you respond under pressure? Because pressure always reveals what's really in the human heart. That always has to do with character. See, these men needed food. But what God was doing through Joseph was God was revealing the famine of these men's hearts. That they needed an awakening of conscience. They needed to grieve. They needed to feel the pain of the past. They needed to mourn for what they had done to Joseph. They needed to be changed. They needed to be transformed by God if they were ever going to step forward into their calling to be used by God. Part one, change. So let's look at where it happens. There's never been more written or available to us about change and transformation as there is right now. The amount of self-help and therapeutic material on the market is staggering. Literally millions of pages written and produced and published 
every year. Some suggest who've done some research on this market and the genre, they suggest that the genre of self-help was sparked by Samuel Smile's book, Self-Help, which was published in 1859, the same year as Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species and John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Smile's book is considered one of the earliest and most successful books, self-help books in history. It is also the namesake of the genre. From the concept of self-help, these ideas gave way to other movements, number one called the New Thought Movement, and then secondly, the Human Potential Movement, which each emphasized the human ability to overcome, right? to win, to conquer, to be happy, or really to change to change something about ourselves on our own, self-help. And today there are a few significant categories of self-help that are on the market. Number one, I'll just give you a couple categories. The first category focuses on circumstantial change. If life isn't going the way you want it, then change your surroundings. Or then get out of the circumstances. And this focuses your, your attention externally, things outside of you. Those are the things that need to change. Those things could be people. It could be a place. It could be a job. It could be a set of circumstances. It could be a work environment. It could be a city. It could be finances. I just need something in my life to change. Let me also not demonize this. I want to agree. There are times and places where things are toxic. You need something to give. You need something to change. But this is saying that for me to change, all of the things around me, my circumstances, my surroundings, those things are the things that need to change first. Number two, in the self-help genre, you look at behavioral change. If you want to improve something about your life, if you want it to give, if you want it to change, simply change something you're doing. I like starting new habits myself. Again, this is not to minimize the fact that starting new routines, habits, practices are essential. But this way of thinking says, just start a new routine. If I get a better outlook, this even has to do with mental patterns, thinking, attitudes, change your attitude, go on a diet, start working out, eat more salads. It can even be religious. Go to church. But start reading your Bible. Elect the right leaders. Draft the right laws. Make people change their behavior. Make them do the right thing. See, the reality is people change laws. And we elect the leaders of choice. And we shift careers, and we end marriages, and we move cities, and we think positive, and we eat kale. But the one constant in each of those examples remains unmoved, and that's namely me and my heart. I'm the constant in each and every one of those situations. I'm still the same. Strip the circumstances back, I'm still here. Change behaviors and patterns, habits, attitudes, I'm still here. But the Bible points us in the direction of internal change, deep change, heart change, transformation of heart and mind and soul, what the Apostle Paul called a new creation, what Jesus might call this concept of the new birth and what the, the prophets in the Old Testament would call the concept of the new heart. Matthew 15, 18, this is Jesus speaking. He says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. He talks about the heart, talks about specific behaviors. 
You can't just change the behavior. You have to change the root of it. Jesus knows that. 2 Corinthians 5.17. The Apostle Paul is speaking. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in Matthew 22, 36 through 38, somebody comes to Jesus and they say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. That's the first and the great commandment. There's a great teacher. His name was Dallas Willard. <clears throat> he was on staff at uh, University of California up in UCLA. He said, Dallas Willard said, he said, the greatest need that you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity is renovation of our heart. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions come has been formed by a world away from God, and now it must be transformed. A little bit later, Willard goes on to say, the heart renovated and inhabited is the only real hope of humanity on earth. Do a little mental exercise with me for a moment. Imagine if every single human on our planet had a heart change right now. They came to know Christ. Jesus broke in. What would it look like if every single human being was changed by the gospel? Kindness would replace animosity. Service would replace selfishness. Inclusion could replace exclusion. Love would replace every single form of hatred. What would happen if the human heart began to be transformed and began to be changed? Well, the world would change in an instant, wars would cease, marriages could heal, workplaces could be just, our families would be filled with happiness and laughter and peace, our insecurities would be eradicated, cities could be filled with righteousness and justice, there would be no more injustice. This is what would happen as Jesus breaks into the human heart. And so you say to yourself, fun mental exercise, sure. But while it's not going to happen in every heart right now, we know that. It can happen in your life, and it could change your world right now. See, the wars in your life could cease. Maybe a marriage can be healed. Workplaces could be just. Families could be filled with laughter and peace. Insecurities can melt away in light of God's love. Isn't this the hope of the gospel? See, this isn't external religion. This is not going through the emotions. This is not just church attendance. This isn't just doing the right things. This is submitting your most precious piece of real estate to Jesus, your heart. It's given that part of yourself to him. See, he's given his life for you. You can then respond. You can give this part of your life to him. See, but he's not interested in your religion. He does not simply want new behaviors. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Idolatry is all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Idolatry is a major category. Idolatry is wrong worship. So he goes, these people, their lips might be, they may be doing the right thing, but their hearts are far from me. Quote, says the people honors me with their lips. They're speaking, they're singing. Maybe they're in church together. Maybe they're in a small group. They're speaking of me. Their lips are doing the right thing. It looks externally. It looks like religion. It looks like devotion. He goes, but man, their heart 
is so far. If Jesus wanted external behavior change, God would have sent us a manual from heaven, but he didn't. He sent us his son who gave his life for yours to pay for your sin, for all of the ways that our hearts are in fact malformed. Yeah, they need to be transformed and reformed, but it comes from the reality that my heart is malformed. And he wants to heal us. He wants to forgive us and transform us at the deepest of levels. And Joseph wants to know, Joseph wants to know who these men, who his brothers are right now. He knows who they were, but he wants to know if these men have changed at the heart level. What about your life? What about change and transformation in your life? Jesus isn't interested in going through the motions, even if they're religious, even if they look pretty and good. See, he wants your most precious part of your life, most expensive part of the real estate. He wants your heart. Let me take you to part three. Number one, change. Number two, where it happens. And now number three, how it happens. This chapter gives us a few clues that God was in fact transforming these men, but we don't get to the end of the story in Genesis chapter 42. It's kind of a tension point in the story. Are they really changing? Is there really going to be transformation? Is there going to be reconciliation? Will Joseph forgive? We're kind of left in Genesis 42, just kind of looking at the theme of transformation and change. But in chapter 42, things are being set in motion. Tim Keller asked this question. He says, what would the effect be if we were to go so deeply into Jesus's promises and summonses, his counsels and encouragements over time that they just dominated our inner life, capturing our imagination? Great question. Christians are told if they knew God's grace and love sufficiently that they would be liberated to forgive, love, change, and grow. But how, he asks, how do you do that? The answer is that Jesus must capture our imaginations. Jesus has to capture our imaginations. And a writer by the name of David Powelson, he gives us five ingredients that I'm going to walk you through briefly to show you how Jesus can capture your imagination, how he can get into every part of your life, and what are the key ingredients every time a human heart and a human life is transformed by the gospel. These are not necessarily in chronological order. Each human is different, but it always begins, number one, with God. And here are the other ingredients, and I'll break them down for you. God, truth, wise people, suffering and trial, and then you change. This is how Jesus begins to capture the human imagination. This is how every single life is actually transformed. Those five ingredients, God, truth, wise people, suffering and trial, and then you decide, right? You change. See, number one, God always changes people. In the scriptures, God is the change agent. See, this is why self-help actually doesn't even make sense. I can't lean into self-help because I can't help myself. This is what the scriptures teach, that there's no way for you to ultimately heal what's going on in the human heart, namely the human dilemma of sin, malformation. This is the biggest dilemma in human history. I have a broken heart. See, and out of my heart flows all sorts of words, all sorts of behaviors, all sorts of activities, all sorts of intentions, all sorts of attitudes. Where does that stuff come from? It comes from me. Where does injustice come from? It comes from me. I create society. I create systems. We together as human beings have things going on in our life. We can't fix ourselves. And so God breaks in. 
God changes things. God redeems. God enlivens. God breathes life. God is the one who heals. God is the one who brings a new sight to the blind. God is the one who also wrecks us before he restores us. That's important. God always wrecks us before he restores us. He convicts us of what's going on in this thing called the human heart. He convicts us of our sin. He convicts us of our need for a Savior. This is good grief. It's godly grief. And you see the process of that actually beginning in Genesis 42 in the lives of Joseph's brothers. God is awakening their consciences again. In verse 21, they say, in truth, and Joseph hears it, and he breaks down weeping. They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is good guilt. This is godly grief. God is awakening the human spirit. These other brothers, he's awakening them to the reality of sin in the human heart. Sin that hurts others, wounds others, betrays others, separates us from God. But sin that was ultimately remedied by Jesus Christ on the cross. Change always begins with God. Number two, the word, truth. God's truth always changes us. This is what the scriptures are. They are God's voice of truth in a world of untruth, in a world of spin, in a world of manipulation, and in a world of lies. The scriptures clarify every facet of human experience. Who am I? What am I here for? Where can I find an identity? Why is there so much pain in our world? What is God doing about that pain and that brokenness? And in what ways am I invited to play a part? The scriptures are truth. And God and the scriptures always work together. This is where the change happens. This is where the change begins. God begins to wreck you before he restores you, but he does it through this gracious truth-telling. He says, let me tell you what's really going on in your life, but let me not condemn you. Let me come and heal you. The word of truth changes us. Number three, wise people always change us. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Let me say it again. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. See, we change one another. You change me, I change you. We're in relationship, we're in proximity. There's physicality there. There's body language, there's intonations. There's all those nuances of what it means to be a human being. We change one another. I see you trying to live out your faith with Jesus. You see me making a mistake and I say, I'm sorry. We embody and embolden and we give each other courage and we move forward together. Wise people change us. We have been missing that desperately in 2020. This is one of the fallouts of the pandemic. We didn't know how it impacted the church. This is how it's impacted the church. We have not been able to walk arm in arm, hand in hand, looking each other in the eye, looking each other in the heart and saying, come with me. Let's follow Jesus together. Wise people change us. Number four, you see this clearly in Joseph's story and even in his brother's suffering and trial change us probably more than anything else. Pain awakens the senses. It quickens the soul, right? It makes us wake up and pay attention. Suffering pulls us to our knees, and if nothing else can make us say help, pain and suffering will. Pain makes the promises of Scripture come alive. Think about that. 
In 2020, did the scriptures come alive for you? I've gone through my own difficulty and my own pain. And as the scripture was spoken to me, as I read it, as I sat with Jesus, in that pain, man, the scriptures burst with technicolor because I needed God in that moment. I didn't necessarily maybe need God prior to that, but I needed God in that moment of pain. Pain and suffering, it brings us to our knees and it awakens us. As a global pandemic and all of the pain, all of the fallout, all the suffering, all the separation awakened your spirit to saying, I need more? And I hope so. Suffering and trial of all shapes, emotional pain, psychological, psychological pain, physical pain, all the different forms of it, relational pain, those things waken us up. And then lastly, we change. We decide. We turn away from old habits. We turn away from evil towards righteousness. We ask for forgiveness. We choose the good. We spend time with Jesus. We repent. We are morally responsible Creatures. One writer said, you are 100% responsible, and yet you are 100% dependent on outside help. It is always your choice, but it is always a choice which is 100% empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it always begins and ends with God. God is the one who is the change agent. He's the transformer. Man, you don't just need external behaviors to change. Do a little bit more for God. Maybe your heart will change. No. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means opening our hands, opening our hearts and saying, God, come in and change me. The things about my life that I have held captive for so long, so much pain, come in and heal it. I've got habits, I've got practices, I've got patterns that don't honor you. Come in and change me. I need your word to speak to me. I need it to change and enliven my mind. I need it to trickle down through my mind to my heart. I need to change. God, his word, wise people, suffering and trial. And then we decide. The Holy Spirit captures your imagination and it fills us with Christ. See, and Jesus is fully committed to your transformation. He is after your heart and nothing less. You can give it to him. You can give him that part of real estate. He has given his life for you. This is one way to respond. Give him everything. Let him change you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story story of twists and turns and dysfunction, story of decades gone by, guilt harbored, bitterness, animosity, fear, hiding, all of those experiences wrapped up in Joseph's brothers, no doubt. And then they made their way to Egypt. They didn't recognize their brother. He sets up this pattern to go, man, have you really changed? But we ask that question of ourselves. Are we looking more like Jesus? Are we walking closely with him? Have we really changed? Lord, you will not heap guilt on us if we say the answer is no. I mean, a lot of us feel like stagnant. We're stuck. You will not heap guilt, but you'll bring love. And you'll bring your spirit. And you'll bring truth. And you'll bring wise people. And you might bring pain and suffering, but it's all for our good. So that we would look more like Christ. So we pray as we think about change and transformation and a new heart, but we wouldn't stop at the surface. We'd allow it to go deep. 
Take us deep. We pray it for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.